0: Romans and chapter six, Romans chapter six, please. I want to read the first 14 verses, Romans, chap- Romans chapter six, please. And you'll find also in your bulletin or up on the screen, I suspect, uh, a prayer of illumination. Uh, we pray always as we open the scripture. Um, recently, we've been praying these prayers together. And so I invite you to um, join me and let's Let's pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. we too might walk in newness of life. For, we have been unite, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, our confessional document, 17th century. The first chapter, there's a paragraph that goes like this. It says, the infallible standard for the interpretation of the Bible is the Bible itself. So any question about the true and complete sense of a passage in the Bible, which is a unified whole, can be answered by referring to other passages which speak more plainly. We often summarize that with a little uh, sentence that the best commentary on scripture is scripture. Now, I say that not because I'm going to run to a bunch of other passages to help us understand this one, but I want you to understand that this passage is a passage to which we often run when we're reading other passages of Scripture. For instance, if you're reading through the book of Galatians, and you get to chapter 2 and verse 20, you read this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But I read that and I say, well, when was I crucified with Christ? Well, then we run back to Romans 6 to help us. Or in Galatians, later in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, and we think, well, how have I been crucified? How's the world been crucified to me? And I to the world. Well, we go back to Romans six, and it helps us. Or if we flip uh, to First John and chapter three, we, we studied First John some time ago, not too long ago. First John chapter three and verse five or verse six. We have um, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, or then, verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And we wonder, wow, what does that mean? What does it mean, not keep on sinning? I look at my life, and I go, whoops. And yet, we go back to Romans 6, and help it, and just get some help to understand that that passage. So I want you to know that the passage we're reading today, all the passages in scripture are inspired by God, but there are some that just are foundational to us. And this whole of chapter six, I'll only get to half of it today at best, but it's one of those passages. In fact, it's so foundational, it's crucial to our lives. we get to chapter eight, if we get to chapter eight together in Romans eight, um, I'm a short timer, I realize, huh? but if we get to Romans chapter 8, then Paul's going to delineate various aspects of our salvation. I want to take what he did there and, 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 and even go a bit farther for a moment. When we think about our salvation, it includes a number of things. It includes our election, as the scripture say, our predestination. It includes our calling, both the outward call of God that we hear the gospel and also the inward work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to hear this gospel and truly believe. And so then it includes also our regeneration, which we call our new birth. And that leads to our conversion, where we believe and repent of our sins. So we repent and believe. And, and in that, then, we have our justification. We're declared by God to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the work of Christ. Uh, and then we're adopted into his family as well. So we're, we're sons and daughters of God, and we receive this adoption. And, and then also, there's this sanctification, which is the process of God working in us by His Spirit to make us holy. And then ultimately, glorification, when we see it all come to fruition as we meet the Lord. Now, what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 6, we've been talking a great deal about justification through these first five chapters. But now, we're gonna get a hint at sanctification, this, how it is that we're, we live holy lives in Christ. And so it's important for us and it's crucial for Paul as he lays out his argument because once we get to chapter 12, he begins to command, he begins to tell us how we're to live, 12 through 14. And none of that makes any sense at all unless you understand Romans 6. Which means that living out this life to which we're called makes no sense at all unless we understand this. In fact, I would suggest if we try to live a holy life without understanding this, then we'll either live in fear, the great fear that, oh no, what happens if I can't? What happens if I don't? Or we'll be frustrated and in despair because we'll try to live this out in self-confidence and we simply can't. We simply need to begin here before we can really live a life that's pleasing to God. Now remember the context. So we just finished chapter five. Remember in chapter five, Paul introduces this idea of covenant. He introduces the idea that God relates to humanity on the basis of two people, Adam and Christ. And so we're all born in Adam. And so he can make the statement that's at first odd to our ears, but once we get a hold of it, we get it. He said, in Adam, we all sinned. What does that mean? I wasn't there, but Adam is my covenant head. Adam represents all of humanity. When I say represents, I don't mean he wasn't a real person. He was a real person. But because he's this real person in history, God puts on him this responsibility. He's a representative. And God gives to him this this, uh, uh, trial, if you will, this test. Uh, If you obey, life for you and all who are in you all of humanity or if you disobey then death for you and all humanity we know Adam sinned and so the sin and its corruption and death which is its punishment came to not only Adam but permeates the entire human race because in Adam we all sinned now the good news of that is that Christ is the second man and he's our champion And Christ has come, as Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, as the second Adam. And he comes, and what does he do? He has a test and he obeys. So he perfectly obeys. And then he takes the curse of the covenant on himself to die for our sins. Then he rises, of course, to declare that all that's done. And so he represents all those who are in him. And all those in him are all the elect, or we could say all those who will believe. And then, Paul ends that passage in verse 20 like this. It says, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now when Paul writes in verse 20 that the law came to increase the trespass, he doesn't mean that God gave the law with the hope that we'd sin more. But rather, when the law comes, we, we see our sin. We really get it. Before, uh, before the law, it was in people's hearts and conscience and all that, and they knew they weren't doing that which was right. But when the law came, it delineates our sin. We read the law, we go, oh my, I sin more than I thought. It, it makes us more aware of it. Paul's point here is that even when the law comes and makes us more aware of our sin, it's no match for the grace of God. And God's grace is so great that it covers all our sin. We'll sing about that at the end today. It covers all our sin. So that, that may lead you to think, well, I guess then, if our sin is dealt with by Christ, it doesn't then matter how we, how we live. It's, uh, it's unnecessary to follow after Christ, to Live a life that's pleasing to God. We, it's already dealt with. It's already done. It's unnecessary. Or maybe you'd think it's, it's impossible. We have a sinful nature. Therefore, we're stuck. All we can do is sin. We're going to live the rest of our lives in the misery of sin through our hatred and anger and gossip and slander and, and deceitfulness and all of that. And so that's it. We're stuck there. But maybe if you're really ingenious, like the person that Paul seems to be debating with, if you're really ingenious, you might say, listen, I got a plan, Since grace abounds over sin, then if I sin a lot, then there'll be so much grace. It'll be great. Now, Paul's response to all of that is, huh? Actually, it's not, huh? It's more like, you're crazy in the head to think that. You know what? It's really more like this Paul's saying, that's impossible. It's impossible. And then he goes on with a rhetorical question, and you know rhetorical questions aren't questions. They're statements. And so he has this rhetorical question. He says, how can we who died to sin live in it? In other words, he's making the statement, if you're a believer in Jesus, you died to sin. So therefore, how can you continue to live in it? If you've died to it, how can you continue to live in it. And so he's making a statement. He's not giving us a command. He's not telling us something we have to do. He's not saying you got to put sin to death. He'll talk about that later. And we, if we ever get to those sorts of passages, we'll talk about them and how they relate to this one. But, but he's simply making a statement. He's saying, you as a believer in Jesus need to realize that you died to sin. So how can you keep living in it? And this raises a number of questions. Like, uh, how did we die to sin? When did we die to sin? What does it really mean to die to sin? Uh, What does it really mean not to live in it? I mean, does that that mean I, I shouldn't be influenced at all by sin? But what if I am? And I'm a believer. Or does this mean I shouldn't sin at all? But what if I do? And I'm a believer. So what's really Paul getting at here? Well, he spends these verses laying this out. So let's just dig in and let's just walk through them. But as I do, I want to give you the main application that Paul has for these verses. The main application that Paul has for these verses is believe this. That's the main application. That's the first start of our sanctification is to believe this. And so as we read through it, keep asking yourself, do I believe this? Do I really believe this? Because if you, if you don't, you have no hope. To live this out. So Paul begins, verse three, he says, do you not know, uh, do you not know, so really he's basing all of this on something that we ought to know. Again, another rhetorical question. He's saying, you know this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So what Paul's gonna base this whole argument on is a doctrinal uh, concept called union with Christ. You've heard that before from sermons. Ryan Randolph mentioned it some time ago. Union with Christ. And it means that we've been joined together with Jesus, our covenant head. We've been joined together with him. And what that means is that all that he gained for us, all that he did for us, all that is true of him in that sense, is ours. Not by virtue of anything we've done, but by virtue of him and the fact that we're in him. In fact, this little expression, uh, in Christ, Paul uses all the time. I I was just, as we were reading our... our, um, profession of faith this morning that happens to be from Ephesians 2. uh, I I began to, I took up my pen and I I circled that he talks about made us alive together with Christ, heavenly places in Christ, toward us in Christ, created in Christ. In other words, this little expression in Christ or with Christ or in the Lord, uh, Paul uses over 160 times in his letters, uh, is this sense of being united to Christ. And so what he's going to be saying here is that this great Work of Christ is ours because we're in him. In fact, I I think perhaps a a summary statement of this is in Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Uh, Paul again writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, every spiritual blessing comes to us because we're united to Jesus, that we belong to him, that he's our covenant head, he's our representative. What he does, we do. And Paul uses baptism as a way to uh, explain this because of all the things that baptism uh, means, it surely means, that we are identified with Christ. Particularly, we're identified with the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul uses the word baptism like this in, uh, in, 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 in other places as well. For instance, in 1 Corinthians and, and chapter 10 and verse 1, he writes, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So he's talking about the Exodus, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and we're all baptized into Moses. I wasn't expecting that. Ba- what does that mean, to be baptized? Well, to be identified with Moses, that now all that Moses would do, you would do, because he's your representative at that point, so he's, he's for you, and so all that, that, that Moses does, well, it's for you. So here Paul uses baptism in a similar way that it identifies us with Christ. It identifies us with the, the death of Christ, particularly will be his point. Now just, I, I may say, this is true, baptism, for baptism, whether you're baptized as an infant or whether you're baptized on profession of faith. So when our infants, when our kids are baptized, um, they receive the sign of this covenant. And what that means is that there is union with Christ through faith, and this promise is for them. You see, baptism doesn't convey the blessing. Baptism isn't what joins us with Christ. We're joined with Christ by a work of the Spirit through our faith. And so when a, a little one is baptized, and then that little one grows up, and as that little one sins, um, we should remind them of their baptism and say, you know, your only hope is to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And you carry upon yourself the sign of that covenant, and so believe. And so if it's a believer in Jesus, somebody who's come on profession of faith, then that person's baptism, their understanding, that person's baptism, isn't that their baptism conveys the blessing, it simply signifies it, it simply marks it out. It says this is, what's, this is what this means. It means if you believe in Jesus, then you're joined together with Christ and all the blessings that he has gained for us are yours. You See, so it means the same. And they're likely in the church in Rome in this time to be both baptized infants and baptized believers because first generation Christians all had to be baptized. And then as we read through the book of Acts, we find that they were baptized and their households. And so by this time in Rome, as Paul writes, everybody understands baptism, to identify with Christ. So he puts it, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus uh, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life.' Supposing this: when Christ died, you died, because you 're in him it 's like when Adam sinned, you sinned, well, when Christ died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He rose to newness of life you're now risen to newness of life. And then verse five, he's more explicit. He says, for if we have been united with him, that's what baptism was signifying, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So he's saying, and and the great guarantee of this is that there'll be a resurrection to come. And then he gets down to the nitty-gritty of it in verse six. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We go, okay, now I see it. When Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. The I there is the old self. That old self is that self that's united to Adam. That's under the penalty of sin and under the power of sin because you're under the corruption of sin. And Paul says, when Christ was crucified as your covenant head, and you're in him, then you too, this old self, was crucified. You've died to sin. I suspect you wouldn't know that unless the Bible told you that, right? I mean, this is behind-the-scenes stuff. (laughs) This is stuff that we don't see, but this is stuff that's revealed to us. We know that our old self was crucified with him, and here's the purpose, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now that little expression body of sin is a tough one. Paul didn't use this anywhere else. Most commentators hold that what he's referring to here is the the body through which we sin. And so it isn't just our physical body, but but all that goes into our sinfulness, our our minds and what we love and what we hate and what we approve of and what we don't what passions or desires all that goes into this that's expressed through our bodies in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing and here's if you want one thing that it means that we have died to sin he would say so that we no long, we would no longer be enslaved to sin so what he's saying is this when Christ died we died and he died to sin To break its power to take its penalty because you see when paul uses the word sin especially in romans he's not only talking about things that we do that are wrong things that are that we do that are contrary to god's law but he talks about sin as a power that sin reigns and sin rules and sin has dominion over us so as unbelievers, you see, all we can do is sin. We're, in, we're under the power of sin. And we're hopeless and we're helpless about that. And so we emphasize a great deal as well, we should, that the work of Christ Pays the penalty for our sin and frees us from the penalty of our sin. And that's great and that's awesome. But that's not all that it does. It also frees us from the dominion, from the power of sin. We've died to it. It's an objective fact. That happened on the cross in Christ as he represented us. And so Paul says, you need to know that. So our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who's died has been set free. From sin, Been justified, been set free from sin. Uh, John Murray, a, uh, a theologian of some significant note from a previous century, in commenting on this passage, writes this. He says, what the apostle has in view is the once for all definitive breach with sin that constitutes the identity of the believer. It's a bit dense, so let me... Read it again and and annotate a bit. This is what Paul's talking about. It's this once for all that is on the cross when Jesus died and we in him. It's once for all definitive breach with sin which constitutes our new identity as believers. This is who we now are. We're in Christ people. We're united to him. Then he goes on to say this, a believer cannot therefore live in sin. If a man lives in sin, he's not a believer. If we view sin as a realm or a sphere, then the believer no longer lives in that realm or sphere. Let me, let me give you a, a Bible text that uh, Paul says something quite similar in Colossians, in chapter 1, in verse 13. He writes, he's delivered us from the dominion, or I'm sorry, I'm... Quoting it out of a different translation, I need to read this one. All right, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In other words, he's taking out us out of one kingdom into another, out of one sphere of existence into another. So now we no longer live in sin, but we live in Christ. Do you see that? I hope, pray, you do. So, verse nine. We know that Christ. Being raised from the dead will no longer die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Sin no longer has dominion over Christ. It did while he was dead because he was paying for the sins of sinners. He had taken upon himself the guilt of our sin and thus there he was in the grave. But then he rose. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Thus the life we live, we are to live to God as well. Now the verse, that's the application, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, now here's how you to think of yourself, consider yourself. You must always think of yourself as one who's not under the dominion of sin, but now under the dominion of Christ not under the reign of sin. Remember, Jesus said, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. The author of Hebrews says, we live under the fear of death. Paul writes in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, that there's a sting in death, but that stinger's been taken out. So we no longer live in the fear of death. We no longer live in the dominion of sin. But now we live in Christ. And he says, so consider yourself. Know that. Believe that. That you're in him. So that not only sin is dealt with, but now you live in him. You're united to Christ to live in him. As he lives in newness of life, that's where you live too. So then verse 12, he gets more specific. He says, let not sin therefore. You see, as Paul is moving to get specific, he still can't get away from what he's just said. He said, let not sin therefore. In other words, he says, you've got to bear everything I've said in mind to be able to take what I'm about to tell you. You need to realize that the power of sin has been broken in your life. Now I can tell you this. Now I can tell you, since you're freed from the, the power of sin and, and you can resist sin, now what I'm telling you is don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as, as instruments for unrighteousness. But... Or positively Present yourselves to God as though you have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, Paul will get into more detail about how to do that and what all that means, but, but I'm going to follow his line because verse 14 goes back to his previous point. It's like he can't tell us too much about what to do until he, he wants to make sure that we really understand who we are. So verse 14 is that point. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Now what I would expect him to to write there was, for sin will have no dominion over you because you've died to it. But he doesn't say that. He says, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Now what does he mean by that? Well, in a sense, he means exactly what he's been saying. When he says you're not under law, it means you're not under the condemnation of the law anymore. That's not where you live. You no longer live condemned by the law. Why not? Because you live under grace. What does that mean? It means that the penalty of the law has been taken by Jesus, and you've been freed from sin's power. To do what? To obey him. To please him. To... Not let sin reign in your mortal body. not obey its passions. To present your members to, uh, to not present your members as instruments of, for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God, you see. Because you see, when we live under grace, we realize, and now we live in the freedom to obey. When, when Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter one. Chapter two, verse 11, he puts it like this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, that doesn't mean everyone's saved, it means that the offer of salvation for all people. Training us, this is what the grace of God does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So he says this is where the grace of God has come, to free us from sin. Now what does that look like in our lives? Well, it doesn't look like sinless perfection because if it does, obviously we're all in trouble. It doesn't mean it will we'll never sin. In fact, much of what Paul will occupy Paul in his letters is, is, is exhorting the people um, not to sin, I'll, I'll to live holy lives. Uh, but he can do that because the power of sin's been broken and now these commands mean something to us. We can actually apply them. And so, so what this means, first of all, is an intolerance for sin in our lives, which is to say that that when we do sin, it grieves us. When we do sin, we notice. When we do sin, we realize it. When we do sin, we name it. And we confess it. It isn't like it was before, before we came to Christ. We just sinned and went, Well, that's just life. That's the way we live. I didn't even notice it was a sin, really. That's just how it's just how I live. Gossip is just what I do. Anger is just what I feel. Uh, 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 lust is just, is, is just an experience of, of my life. And, 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 but now that you're a believer, you see, those things happen. You sin, and you realize, no, this isn't how I ought to be. This isn't who I am in Jesus. So we're intolerant of it. It grieves us. We confess it. We name it. We, we repent of it. We ask God to help us. We, we, we don't try to progress in our sin. We, we don't try to get better at it. We, 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 we try to cast it off, you see. Because, because we live in, in a time, where some theologians call it, say we live in the, this already and not yet in the context of the work of Christ. There's some things that we have that are ours right now in this life. We know we're forgiven our sins. We know we're adopted. We know we're justified. We know we have peace with God, Romans 5. We know we have access to, to live in this grace. Right? And we know in glory that it'll all come to fruition. Everything will, everything will be there. But right now, we know we're in between. We, we still physically die. That's still part of it. And we know still that since the power of sin has been, even though the power of sin has been broken in our lives, still it resides in us. So it's here. Its presence isn't gone. In glory, the presence of sin will be gone. It won't be there at all. But now it's, it's here, and so we know the struggle. Paul will talk about it in Romans 7. He talks about it in Galatians 5. He talks about it all over the place because it's real for us, you see. But it's different now. There's been a decisive break with it. I'm no longer under its penalty. I don't fear the judgment of God because it's been taken. I don't live under that bondage to fear. What will God do with me if he ever finds me? Well, he's found me. In Jesus, I needn't fear. I live in him. Right? And now you see, it frees me to live You know, Paul, I'm sorry, John writes in 1 John chapter 5 that the commandments of the Lord aren't burdensome. Why is that the case? Because it's the wisdom of God. His commands are are for us because this is how we're to live as human beings. This is the right way. This is the way that, as Jesus would put it, is the easy way, right? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. This is the easy way, if you will, in that sense easier for us. It should be, because this is the way we've always been meant to live. They're not burdensome, these commands. And so now the glory of being in Christ is that we're freed. We're free to live as God would have us live. And to live, not only individually, but live together. To really love each other. So let me help you get it. Actually, let Jesus help you get it. Don't, don't grab for your communion packets. You need to see this. You need to hear this. On the night that he was betrayed, Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave this to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle adds, As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring, We died. When he died, we died. And we died to sin. We died to its penalty. We died to its power. Its dominion over us. We're free. And when he rose to newness of life, we rise with him to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Let's pray, Father. Pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we really would get Romans 6. So we really understand the first step in holy living isn't our willpower, but it's what we know to be true. The first step is what we know to be true about what Christ has done, to know what is true about what that means for us and who we are. We're now in him. God, enable us to live in that realization. To reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So please, I pray that these moments And you would help us to see it, solidify it in our hearts. That it would always be on our minds, every moment of every day, that we've been crucified with Christ, but nevertheless we live. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. In this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.